Well, if you have your Bibles, you may open them to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be in a lot of scripture this morning, and so if you do have a Bible, or or if you don't, there's one in front of you in the book rack. Fight with the person next to you for it. The one thing I do promise you is we will only move right this morning, so you're not going to have to use your left hand to turn pages, so I messed up my right hand this week. I chopped my finger with an axe, Uh, so maybe I should have moved left in the scriptures. I'm going to be turning pages, so this is not like me learning how to turn pages. I'm good. I'm fine, but... Matthew chapter 10. Don't worry about my finger. Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, Freely you have received, freely give. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Imagine a woman is sitting on a Saturday morning at her kitchen table trying to figure out how to navigate her weekend. Her father passed away on Wednesday, and she's got to make all the arrangements, and she's wondering where the rest of her family is in a time like this, who should be helping her. Her mother is in the other room. Her mother came to live with her when her father first went to the hospital because her mother was sick herself, and so now she's been the primary caretaker for her mom over these last few months, and then her dad passes away almost suddenly. And so she's full-time caregiver to a, to a mom that's just in her last few days on this planet. Her father is down at the mortuary awaiting a service next week, and, and she's just staring at all of the paperwork and the bills and all the stuff that has to get done when there's a knock at the door. She gets up, and she walks through her cluttered living room with all the medical supplies and laundry and dishes and opens the door, and there's this ragtag bunch of high school guys standing there, smiling. She's like, can I help you? I said, ma'am, we're on a missions trip. We want to tell you about Jesus today. (laughs) She's like, oh, not today. (laughs) Today's not a good day for me. My mom is sick, and I have to care for her, and it's just been a hard week. Like, well, hey, if your mom's sick, can we just come in and pray for her? no, my house is trash. This isn't a good time. Like, I, I know Jesus. You check me off your list. I'm good, right? Like, man, we would love to pray for her. And she says, you know, my mom, she's asleep. She's been asleep for a week. She doesn't, she won't even know you're here. They said, well, that's fine. 
We'll just pray and we'll leave. We'll just be a minute, just a minute. She's like, all right, you know what's easier? Just to let you in my house. So come on in, come on in, right? She says, okay, right, right past all that wheelchair and, and all the medical stuff. That's my mom's room. You're welcome to pray for her. And she follows the boys in there and they kind of surround the bed. And it's kind of cute, like high school boys praying, you know, God, we pray that you would bless this woman. Her daughter seems like such a nice lady, you know. <laughs> and so she hears them start to pray. She realizes they're not a cult or anything, so she kind of sneaks out and goes back to the kitchen and sits down at the table. And a few minutes later, the, the boys emerge, and they say, thank you for the opportunity. Your mom is such a nice lady. And she said, well, how do you know she's a nice lady? It's like, oh, she, she was telling us about how, how you're such a good daughter and you've cared for her. And she's like, what? And so they say, oh, see ya, and they leave. She goes in there, and her mom is putting on her shoes. She's like, thanks, thanks for the last few months. I'm out of here. She's like, whoa, hold on, what? She's like, yeah, they prayed for me, and I'm back, and I'm ready to go live life. I'm going to dance tonight or whatever. She's like, whoa. And so she goes outside, and she sees these kids walking up the driveway. And she says, hey, what happened in there? And the, the lead of the boys turns around and says, the kingdom of heaven is here, ma'am. Have a nice day. <laughs> She's like, oh, man, I wish you would have been here on Wednesday before my father passed. And, and he looks at her and says, where is he now? She's like, well, he's down at the mortuary. He said, well, we'll go and wake him up. Have a nice day, right? <laughs> that would be pretty cool. <laughs> That's what happens in Matthew 10. Did you notice that? Jesus pulls this ragtag bunch of high school age, probably, boys to him, men to him, and says to all these guys, including Judas Judas Iscariot and Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, right? Here's the plan. I'm going to give you authority over some things. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to drive out demons. You're going to heal the lepers. You're going to make the blind men see. Now go into a city. Don't take anything with you. Just go knock on doors. And when you get to a house, if they're nice, they'll let you in. They'll feed you. Don't worry about bringing food or clothes or money. You'll be fine. People will take care of you. If they don't let you in, if they're mean to you, may God have mercy on their souls, right? But if they're nice to you, they'll, you'll go into their house. Just do some great work there, and God will do miraculous things as you follow him. And so they go and cast out demons. They heal the sick. They raise the dead. They cleanse the lepers. They do the things that only Jesus has been doing for the first nine chapters of Matthew. At the end of chapter nine, he sees all the people who need help. And he says, let's pray that God sends workers into the harvest field. And then they say, amen. And then Jesus says, now you go into the harvest field. And he sends them out there and says, go, go, go and do miraculous, miraculous things. What are we supposed to do with this passage? Are we supposed to like dismiss and go down to Eden Hospital and clear the place out? Walk down to Deer Creek or Spencer's Mortuary and say, hey, we want to wake everybody up and go back to church. Go under the overpasses and find people who are struggling with real demon possession. Just rip the demons out of them and say, come on, let's go down the street, bring everyone, raise the dead, heal the sick. Should we go and do that? That'd be cool. Sometimes we read this passage and we say, God, is is this what we're supposed to be doing? Because I'm not doing that. We see people on TV who seem to be doing that, and it always seems like there's something off with it. And Jesus tells them to go. And is this just one of the Bible stories like in the Old Testament, like with Jonah or Moses or Noah? And we say like, okay, this is cool, it's true, it happened, but it's probably a one-time thing. 
Right? God's not going to use me to part a sea. He's probably not going to stick me in a fish, right? Those things have been fulfilled. Is that like this? Are we supposed to be people who just read the text and say, wow, Christianity used to be amazing, and now it's kind of, let me go to church now. I read my Bible. I wish God would do something cool, but now I just read about it. This morning, as we look at the scriptures, we will see that ministry today is different than the ministry in the first century, but not that different. I want us to walk from Matthew all the way through the book of Acts and see exactly how this fleshed out over the course of the church. And I think that we'll see that by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, the type of ministry that they have then is the type of ministry that we have now. And we're going to talk about how we might cultivate that kind of miraculous, amazing, beautiful ministry where Jesus said, you will do greater things than even I did in John 14. You guys up for a little lecture on uh, the book of Acts this morning? Grab your pencils, pull out your outlines. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and 3. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease. Then Matthew lists their names. Then he says, here's the instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or any town to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The first two blanks, if your outline going today, are Jesus gives them authority and sends them out preaching. Right? We think Jesus gave them authority and sent them out demon casting. They did that. But what we want to see in this passage is before we move into that, what Jesus says is, I'm going to give you authority to do two things. Cast out demons and heal every disease and sickness. You can write those down too. Cast out demons and heal every disease and sickness. And then he says, now go and preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason I want us to see that Jesus gives them authority and sends them out preaching is because that will remind us of another passage of scripture in the book of Matthew where Jesus does the same thing with the disciples that we like hang our ministry hat on. It's the Great Commission. Remember that? Turn to Matthew 28. It's to the right. Matthew 28. We saw in Matthew 10, he gives them authority and sends them out preaching. Now listen to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus comes to the disciples and he says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Matthew 28 is very similar to Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, Jesus gives them authority and sends them out preaching. In Matthew 28, Jesus uses his authority to send them out preaching. Very similar. Right? Matthew 28 is a passage that we say, this is what we need to do. We need to go out under the authority of Jesus and preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize people, teach them to obey. We preach, we teach, we engage with people with the gospel under the authority of Jesus. It's very similar. And yet in a few ways it's different. If we don't see anything in Matthew 28 about demon exorcism or about healing or raising the dead, that kind of thing. 
We see that it's not he hasn't given us authority in Matthew 28. He says he has the authority. Now we go and live under his authority. And so it could be easy to read Matthew 28 and say, oh, okay. So it used to be that God's people did supernatural things. Now they're just like Bible lecturers. Now they just preach the gospel. Now they just teach people no more miracles. Except if you look in a lot of other places in scripture, that stuff keeps on happening. And if you want to go to the right a little bit, go to the end of the book of Mark, chapter 16. Mark gives us a reiteration of the Great Commission that includes the preaching and the cool stuff. For the record, don't refer to miracles as the cool stuff. It just came out. This is verse 15 of Mark 16. He said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it won't hurt them at all. Don't try that at home. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples and went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Mark's version of it says what Jesus said is, under my authority, you're going to go out preaching and with your preaching will be miraculous things. And some of you are pushing back and saying, well, mine's in italics. That means that Mark 16 doesn't belong in the Bible, right? It says here in mind, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And and that's probably true. That when Mark wrote the book of Mark, he probably didn't write those words. That was probably added later by someone, a scribe or someone who said, you know what? Mark left out the Great Commission and that's important. Or I remember when people told me about Mark, they included the Great Commission, the snake stuff. Let's put that back in, right? And so they put it in. So you can make an argument that we shouldn't even read Mark 16, Because it doesn't technically belong in the Bible. You can make that argument. So let's go to the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 1. I wanted you to see Mark 16 because it's there. Because it might belong in the Bible. And because Mark 16 is a description from the early church of what life looked like in the early church. But if we want something to lean on as we build this case for what ministry is supposed to look like, let's look at Acts chapter 1. Again, it's to the right. Sounds a lot like the Great Commission. Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. There's the authority word again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So as we start to look at Great Commission ministry, the first thing you can write down there is in Acts 1, the ministry, Jesus says you have the power to witness. The power to witness. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. You will tell the world what I have done. And yet, as we start reading what this looks like, it's crazy stuff, right? One chapter later, they're all together in one place waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up like a fire, sets them aflame with these tongues, these supernatural tongues where they're all speaking languages that they've never studied. People from the city hear the commotion. They run up the hill. They find the disciples. They hear the gospel in their native languages and they say, what is happening here? And then Peter steps up, addresses them all and says, hey, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Here, he says that. I'm not just paraphrasing. 
He says, here's what's happening. The Spirit is pouring out and something new is happening. And this is about Jesus and he preaches. And so what we see in Acts chapter 2 is a miraculous movement and then preaching that comes out of it. And as the Apostle Peter starts to walk into his ministry in the book of Acts, that's the one-two punch of Peter's ministry. Miracles and preaching. Miracles and preaching. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking up to the temple at the time of prayer, and there's a man who can't walk, and he's never been able to walk, and he's asking for money. Peter says, well, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And the man gets up. And he runs away, jumping and dancing and praising God and causes a commotion. And the crowds start to come. And after the miracle, Peter stands up and starts preaching. And thousands of people get saved. Miracle and preaching. Then Peter gets thrown in prison because people don't like when you do stuff like Peter's doing. He gets thrown in prison in chapter 5. He's in prison and a miracle happens. The doors of the prison swing open. And Peter books it out of jail, goes to the temple and starts preaching, miracle preaching. And what we see in the early chapters of Acts is after the Great Commission, Jesus goes, sits on his throne, gives out his spirit, and starts ruling and taking and orchestrating all of creation and making miraculous things happen. Miracle preaching, miracle preaching. These are the signs that accompany the believers' miracles and preaching the gospel. Then the apostle Paul gets saved in a miraculous way. He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He's on the road to Damascus. God blinds him. Jesus says, stop persecuting me. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting me. Now go another direction. And so he sends Paul and says, you're going to be my minister to the Gentiles. And Paul starts a ministry that's characterized by preaching and miracles. Preaching and miracles. Now, I'm not just getting creative and finding a different way to say it. Peter's ministry was characterized by miracle preaching, miracle preaching, miracle preaching. Paul's was the other way around. Paul's one-two punch was he would preach the gospel, and then miracles would sometimes emerge and solidify and say, this message is true. So his one-two punch was preach, miracle, preach, miracle. We can see that if you turn some pages over to Acts chapter 14. It's to the right. Acts 14, verses 1 through 3. This is an early city of Paul's missionary journeys, and and it embodies kind of what his style was in ministry in a lot of other cities. 14, 1 through 3. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Paul goes in and he preaches and he preaches and he preaches and then God confirms his preaching with miracles, preaching and miracles. Then Paul moves into a few other cities in chapter 17 and 18. You don't have to read that, but he goes to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. And as Paul goes into those cities, we don't hear about any miracles. 
What we hear is he goes into the city and he preaches. He goes to Athens and he preaches on Mars Hill. He goes into Corinth and he preaches. He gets run out of town. He goes into Thessalonica and he preaches. He goes into Berea and he preaches. And the people study the scriptures. There's preaching and discipleship and preaching and discipleship. That's his lead is preaching, preaching, preaching. But the miracles still exist. If you jump into Acts 19, which is to the right, Acts 19, verses 8 through 12, we see the place where Paul spent the majority of his time in the book of Acts, the city of Ephesus. And at the end of his time in Ephesus, Luke gives us, who wrote Acts, a summary statement of Paul's time there. In verses 8 through 12. In Ephesus, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So crazy miracles, but Paul led with preaching. In fact, when you read Acts 20, verse the 28 area over here, one page over to the right, Actually, in verse 18, Paul talks to the elders at Ephesus and he recaps his time there. He says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know I have not hesitated to preach anything that might be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. If you read through those few verses, you see that Paul talks about preaching and teaching and declaring over and over and over again. Paul's primary mode of ministry was preaching, and yet there were miracles. Peter's ministry was miracles and preaching. Paul's ministry was preaching and miracles. And here's what I want you to see in the book of Acts. This is the kind of bottom line here. As Acts progresses, ministry becomes less characterized by supernatural signs and more characterized by the preaching of and training in the gospel. As Acts progresses, less supernatural signs, more preaching of and training in the gospel. And we think of John 14, where Jesus said, you will do greater works than these. Then we watch the book of Acts, and it transitions from less of the supernatural stuff and more into the preaching and discipleship stuff. It doesn't seem like greater stuff. Like to us, it seems like snake handling and tongue speaking and demon exercising is the greater stuff and preaching is the boring stuff. Anyone can preach. Not anyone can heal. Not anyone's handkerchief can heal a sick man, right? But I think what we don't get is that preaching is the greater stuff. Right? John 14, you will do greater works than me. And then he goes and talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send you, send you the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. He will convict the world in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment, and he will remind you of all the things I have taught you. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to help you to understand the message of the gospel. It's easy for us to say, man, I wish I had miracles. All I have is the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power of God. Like, if we see someone who is sick and we think, oh man, I wish I could heal him, then they'd believe. Is that true? Jesus did miracles. Did everyone believe in him? 
No, they did not believe in him. The power is in the gospel. And sometimes God gives us opportunities to do miraculous things, but the most miraculous thing God will ever do through you is use you to preach the gospel and see someone rescued from death. When you think of how amazing it is to rescue someone from death if you pray for them and they get out of bed, right? If someone's laying on a stretcher, you pray for them and they get off the stretcher and they're alive again, that's amazing, but that's a picture of what happens at a greater level when someone believes the gospel. They were eternally dead, and now they are eternally alive. They were hellbound forever, and now they will live in the kingdom for eternity. They weren't just saved for a few years so they can say, wow, God healed me, and then they die again. What happened instead is they are rescued and ransomed from death. The chains fall off, a new spirit is in them, and then they live with Christ forever. It's greater. Just like Jesus foretold, we will do greater things than these. We will not just rescue people from sickness and demons. We will rescue them from death and the devil himself forever. It's better. It's better. Here's your last plank. A biblical understanding of powerful ministry Under Christ's authority, we preach and disciple. As the Lord gives us opportunities, we cast out demons and bring healing to the sick. And if you're wondering, hey, does that stuff still happen? It still happens. And we have people come up here. You've got people that maybe you've ministered to or maybe you've worked with the ministry here and you've seen it happen. Someone comes and they are obviously demonized. Right? Every time you bring up Jesus, they go crazy on you. Right? You pray for them, and you pray for them, and sometimes they're delivered from that, and it happens. We have people come up, they come to our prayer room. They come up to our Bible studies. They come up to our elders, and we anoint them with oil, and we pray for them, we lay hands on them, and sometimes they're healed. They go back to the doctor, and the doctor says, the cancer's gone. The doctor calls and says, I'm looking at these reports. We had one of these last week. The doctor says, I had thought you had a 90% chance that you had serious cancer, but, but we just got the results. There's nothing, nothing. It happens, and we rejoice, but you know what? We would rather talk about a sinner finding Jesus than someone with cancer finding healing because it's better. And if you've been healed from cancer, you know it's better. Some of you have been sick and in bed and the church has prayed for you and you've gotten out of that bed and you've said, you know what? I've got a second chance at life. I'm going to use it to the glory of God. And you started preaching the gospel and better things happen to your family and friends and neighbors than happened to you when you were saved from your sickness. We get that, right? We love it when people get physically healed. We love it when people get freed from bondage of all that junk in this world. We love it, but we love it more when a lost person is found. Because that's not just a a short-term change. That is a long-term, eternal change. And it transforms them, and God uses them to transform everyone around them as well. That's how the kingdom works. And we go out, and we have opportunities to do great things, miraculous things, amazing things, and we love it. And we lean into the gospel. Because Jesus says, you're not going to just do some of the things that I did. You're not just going to heal the sick and free people from demons. You're not just going to do that. You're going to do something greater. I'm going to put something in you that's going to lead you into truth and give you the opportunity to share a message that will change people's eternal destiny. And so go out and preach it. Go out and preach the gospel. Preach boldly, preach often, look for opportunities, pray for opportunities, pray for workers and then become that worker. Then go out and tell your neighbor, tell your mom, tell your friends about the message of the gospel and sometimes it'll just bounce off of them. But every once in a while, that message will change their eternity. We're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of 
everyone who believes. And he's put that message and he's put that spirit in us. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in all of us who believe in Christ. This morning as we close this time of teaching, we have an opportunity to receive the communion meal. If you're new to Christianity, if you're not a believer, all that, let me explain a little bit of it to you. What happens is we, we get this bread and we get this cup. And we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed when he took bread and he broke it and he passed it around to his disciples and said, eat this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. This bread is my body. And he took the cup, this cup of the new covenant, and he passed it around and said, drink this. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's so important that before we go out and start proclaiming the gospel, we take a moment to remember that it's Christ in us that does the work. That it's Christ in us that saves us. That it's Christ in us that is proclaimed. That it's not us and our words and our fanciness or anything like that. It's, it's him in us. He is dwelling in us. His word, his spirit is in us. So this morning as you receive these elements, hold on to them and I'll come up. We'll, we'll eat them together and we'll remember that as a community, Christ is our food. Christ is our sustenance, and Christ is our message, Christ is our all. We will proclaim his death. We will celebrate that he died to give us life, and he died to give life to all who believe. Let me pray for us as the ushers come forward, and then we'll pass out the communion meal.